Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Carl Weichold. It's uh, July 6th, 2022, and we're here at Stoller. Uh, Carl, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Uh, first question to get you rolling is why wine? You know, honestly, uh, uh, I, got, I got started in wine um, in, in college. Uh, I, I used to wait tables just to pay the bills and uh, make rent in uh, an Italian restaurant. And, uh, um, you know, kind of fell in love with uh, what wine was there, uh, but never really considered it a career. Uh, it was uh, after college uh, when I was out uh, visiting a, a friend who also had worked at that restaurant uh, at his new job in uh, Fredericksburg, Texas, that um, uh, it all kind of made sense to me. He um, uh, tried to get me out of town for uh, a weekend just to go help him uh, um, move some wine around and uh, help out in the tasting room. And uh, I ended up uh, just uh, kind of falling in love with it. Uh, just just the, uh, the fact that I was driving a tractor and then doing stoichiometry and then uh, um, you know, handling pumps and then also chatting with people about the product, it, it all kind of clicked. Um, I was a biochemistry and uh, genetics major, and um, the, the medical track didn't really uh, appeal to me. I don't do well with uh, blood and viscera. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the academic route um, started to kind of lose its appeal as well. Uh, I'd worked in a uh, um, uh, genetics lab for uh, about three years, and it was just getting pretty dry, so I didn't really know what I was doing at that point, and wine just suddenly made sense. It, it, was, it was a way that I could uh, uh, you know, invest myself in a, in a kind of a creative endeavor while at the same time using uh, you know, what I learned in uh, um, my education uh, just to apply science and um, honestly get outdoors a little bit. You know? <laughs> it just it, 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 it ticked all the boxes that I think I, I didn't know that I needed. And um, after that weekend, uh, I instantly quit my job, begged a guy for uh, a job at that position. I was, I was actually about to go be a uh, pharmaceutical sales rep for Merck. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, tore up that offer and uh, um, took a job for half the pay. Um, pissed my parents off for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, the the guy ended up uh, um, uh, having me out there that summer and uh, um, first worked at uh, a place called Torre di Pietra, which uh, um, was right outside Fredericksburg uh, for a couple months, and then uh, moved over to uh, Woodrose Winery, uh, which is another couple miles down the road, and I worked for a guy named uh, Mike Gillette there. Um, he's a software engineer, uh, I'm sorry, a, a semiconductor engineer for uh, um, one of the firms out of Austin. And uh, the, the winer was kind of his um, uh, side project slash perspective uh, retirement project. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he let uh, me and my uh, uh, buddy, Chris Brundrett, essentially uh, uh, run the place, both you know from a farming perspective and and a winemaking perspective, and as, as somebody that's new to this entire industry, that was just a remarkable amount of opportunity. <laughs> uh, I think we're all kind of learning together uh, at that point, um, and uh, made some some interesting wines, some good ones, some really bad ones, and uh, um, also shipped some stuff in from uh, uh, Temecula, as, as most places in Texas end up doing. But um, yeah, it's been about uh, uh, two years there. Um, just uh, kind of learning the ropes, all the basics, doing a lot of construction along with actual uh, wine work and doing sales and um, just fell further and further in love with uh, what it was to make wine. Um, I did realize after a while though that uh, the, the Texas wine industry wasn't going to give me what I was after in terms of uh, um, just a, a depth of education and uh, rigor. And uh, I needed to uh, be out in a place where, you know, if I uh, uh, wasn't making any money in Texas. I might as well be out in a place where I'm, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, not making money but learning. <laughs> so, in uh, '09, um, we uh, uh, ended up uh, uh, moving out to uh, uh, the Willamette Valley for an internship at uh, Twelfth Maple Wine Company. I was in the lab there, and. Uh, 
ended up having to uh, um, actually wait for it for a little bit, so I went back to waiting tables, <laughs> which it's never a position you want to be in for sure. But um, yeah, the uh, uh, the drive was there to to get up here and uh, uh, you know actually uh, learn from a, a place that I absolutely loved uh, uh, the wine in. Um, so after that internship um, uh, at, at Twelfth and Maple, I, I was. Um, uh, my my, my uh, uh, love of this uh, entire art was just entirely renewed. Uh, I was able to see uh, dozens of uh, different clients uh, that uh, made wine with as many different philosophies and uh, um, at the same time uh, um, not really uh, um, be at my own uh, uh, personal risk for them, but just you know, as a uh, provider for a um, you know custom crush facility, it was it was a great way to uh, kind of see this the results, the, su the successes and failures of um, so many different winemaking philosophies. Um, so I essentially, again, kind of begged for a job at the end of the internship and uh, I ended up working as a lab tech there. Um, and the next year, uh, um, worked another uh, harvest with them uh, and became their enologist. And then uh, I think a year or two after that, uh, ended up as their uh, lab manager. Um, and uh, it, it was, to me, I think one of the uh, the most, uh, how do I put this, um, fundamental parts of how uh, my winemaking philosophy has been uh, informed is that from, um, from the aspect of looking at wine, um, you know, in, in uh, a data-driven sense, uh, I was able to uh, um, almost, almost get down to a very in, uh, an intuitive understanding of what it was to look at data and how it affected uh, um, the, the end result in winemaking. And um, that's not to say that, uh, you know, necessarily like think that wine should be uh, something that you, you know, fly by numbers with, but uh, it, it provided so much context as to uh, the, uh, the, the successes and failures of certain decisions in winemaking. Um, and again, the, the, the whole nice bit was that um, uh, none of this wine was uh, anything that I'd necessarily personally have to uh, put my name on. You know, it's just it was up to it was up to the uh, the winemaker that instructed those uh, decisions to uh, um, you know uh, make those decisions. So um, in uh, uh, 2015, I was kind of getting a little restless, uh, starting to see that uh, you know I was kind of tapped out in terms of things that I could possibly learn in that position, and I started looking for an actual winemaking position and. A a uh, position became available with uh, Erath uh, as their assistant winemaker. And uh, I knew Gary uh, Horner uh, for a, a pretty long time because they had been clients at the Custom Crush facility uh, for, gosh, I think since 2007, maybe earlier. But um, yeah, when uh, that position became available, uh, um, uh, I interviewed for it and uh, basically moved one uh, door over at <laughs> uh, 12th and Maple and uh, became their uh, assistant winemaker. And that was eye-opening because I finally got to uh, um, be part of the creative process of winemaking and actually have you know, some more serious investment in uh, what it was to, uh, to, to make wines up here. Um, Erath was an interesting company to work for as well because they grew grapes or uh, um, contracted with growers uh, from all over the state. So uh, we're seeing sites from as far south as uh, the Rogue Valley, uh, and some sites in the Gorge, as well as you know, it, it, it's its historic presence here in the, the Willamette Valley, um, which uh, to me just was was fascinating to see the the um, diversity of sites uh, throughout all this uh, throughout the state, and then also um, you know the the actual numbers that would come in on, on the uh, uh, the grapes themselves, the, the, the wonkiness of the uh, the chemistries and everything like that, right? So, um, yeah, it, 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 I think in the end uh, was another one of these formative experiences in that um, it, you, in that role, uh, have to be a good winemaker in a variety of uh, uh, different, um, I guess, uh, winemaking paradigms because Pinot Noir acts so differently in all those sites. Um, but uh, you had to do it within the constraints of a house style. Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, that's, that's um, uh, always been a, a, a pretty interesting challenge to uh, get right, uh, not only in one vintage, but year on end. So you have some sort of continuity, uh, vintage to vintage. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I don't know, I just kind of fell in love with that role. Uh, it was it was nice to uh, be part of such a historic brand. Uh, it, was, it was nice to work with all those sites. Uh, Gary was an enormous resource for me. Um, and Gary had decades worth of uh, 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 experience all over the state and even in California. Just that uh, um, uh, I was able to uh, um, kind of uh, uh, learn from. Um, and then also just working with St. Michelle. Um, a, uh, an enormous uh, um, uh, amount of talent on the uh, the bench there to uh, to draw from as well. So, in terms of resources, I don't think I've ever um, had a job uh, with so many uh, uh, brains around. You know, in, in terms of winemaking, that were uh, you know the, the, that big of a you know a set of luminaries in the uh, the wine industry. But um, yeah, at some point uh, I realized that you know, uh, um, you know, while being assistant winemaker was great, I, I did kind of want to get to a point where I had a, uh, a physical cellar under my feet, not one that you know had to work through a uh, custom crush arrangement. And uh, when Stoller approached me in uh, 2020, I uh, um, was extremely excited about uh, uh, coming on board and actually having uh, uh, the, those resources. Um, Kind of at my uh, disposal. And this country, this company's been uh, amazing, just in terms of like it's an investment and uh, a trust of its talent. It, it definitely um, goes out of its way to make sure it has the right people here, and then gives them whatever they need to to succeed. You know, it's 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 uh, uh, in a different sense. Um, some of the best resources I've ever had, um, you know, in, in, in winemaking, just from the standpoint of uh, equipment, investment, um, uh, just kind of the creative freedoms to do, you know, what we know how to do best. So um, when I joined in 2020, it was, uh, it was, uh, I think, the last week of August, and I uh, got maybe about two weeks before the fire set in. <laughs> that, that first vintage was, was an eye-opener eye for me, for sure, um, dealing with uh, um, smoke issues on a scale I'd never dealt with them before. And um, it, it was, uh, I don't know, uh, um, both one of the most heartbreaking vintages while it happened, but then also one of the, um, I don't know, uh, 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 pinnacles in terms of uh, the successes that I had with that vintage later. Um, some of the pinots that I've made from that vintage uh, are, are some of my favorite wines I think I've ever made. Um, uh, we were able to make uh, an enormous amount of really, really good rosé. Uh, and then uh, um, we were even able to, uh, you know, with some of the, the more compromised wine, make a uh, uh, a really unique uh, one-off product, um, the uh, the new spritz that we have. Um, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about my uh, vermouth company. <laughs> um, <laughs> can we can we go back to 2012 for a little bit? Yeah, awesome. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, in 2012 at Twelfth and Maple, I did try to. Uh, uh, get a small vermouth company uh, off the brown uh, off the ground. Uh, it's it's called uh, it still exists today. Um, it's called uh, Interabang Vermouth, and we did a uh, both a sweet and a uh, white vermouth. Um, and uh, the reason I got this was uh, basically uh, um, I think Byron of uh, Seven of Hearts uh, let me use uh, the unsqueezed portion of his uh, dessert wine. <laughs> <laughs> to, to squeeze some more juice and just I think gave it to me for like a dollar or something like that just some you know nominal amount of money so I, I had what constituted a, a base wine to start making vermouth with for effectively free and uh, I started noodling around with some uh, some recipes uh, some uh, uh, I think four dozen lay, uh, tries later, like I ended up uh, making a sweet vermouth that I enjoyed. And then um, about a year later, uh, I ended up making a white vermouth that we uh, um, uh, put out in the market. And um, that that was honestly, um, I don't know, one of uh, uh, um, uh, my, my harebrained ideas to kind of get a uh, private label off the ground at some point. But it turns out vermouth's a pretty slow pour. <laughs> so getting the volume through and a brand established was, I don't know, uh, uh, it was it was a hard lesson in uh, um, uh, business, you know, entrepreneurship 101, I'd say. Um, but uh, it's still kind of plotted along. The, the business still exists. Uh, um, uh, in order to um, uh, uh, kind of uh, steward the brand through um, the my tenure at 
uh, St. Michelle. Uh, I had to sell it to a friend. Um, so he was a custodian for it for uh, a couple of years um, while I was there. And then um, now I'm uh, uh, still own half of the business at this point. So um, with that said, that vermouth is also part of our uh, um, uh, new spritzer, uh, the, the the product that I was talking about from the uh, 2020 vintage. Um, so yeah, pretty proud of that uh, whole part of the, uh, um, I don't know, an inclusion with the brand here. Um, 21 uh, was, uh, I think, my first real Honest vintage here in terms of scale and uh, the uh, I don't know just the, um, uh, the 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 volume that this facility should put through and the quality that um, you know we were kind of looking for in terms of just um, you know what what it's capable of in an unencumbered sense and um, it was it was nice to uh, um, I don't know see. Uh, see my desire to have a cellar under my feet kind of realized in that sense. It was as rewarding as I would have hoped, honestly. Uh, it it um, uh, kind of validated the fact that, you know, this is what I had been working for for so long and uh, took a lot of pride in the wines that uh, we ended up making. Uh, Stoller's been um, extremely uh, 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 generous in just, you know, kind of handing over the reins to uh, uh, their winemakers and letting them uh, run with it. And, uh, you know, working with Ben and Melissa on house style and um, uh, kind of executing a, a, a grander uh, uh, winemaking vision was um, definitely what I uh, wanted to do, you know, for the next step in my career, mm -hmm. for sure. So. <laughs> kind of a long enough like answer to your initial oh, question. That's a great, great answer. Awesome. It's, like, it's like your LinkedIn page. There you go. Detail. So I want to back up for a second to, to when you're before you came to Oregon, when you're when mm -hmm. you're in Texas and you're you have this kind of revelation about wine when you realize it checks these boxes for you. Um, tell me about the learning process at that point. Obviously, you have a scientific background. You're, you mm -hmm. have some knowledge in that, but wine. It's, what did you have to learn? What were the biggest kind of learning blocks for you, and what were the kind of like what were the kind of the moments along the way that where you thought, this is where I want to go, this is what I want to do? Um, it was actually in some of the uh, quieter hours uh, in in Texas at the uh, the cellar. You know, if I was waiting on fruit to arrive, I'd just uh, <laughs> do some casual reading of winemaking textbooks. <laughs> just uh, ended up reaching out to uh, a couple of uh, um, uh, people at Davis, uh, getting the uh, um, uh, all the texts for uh, their curricula out there and kind of choosing what was uh, what was available, what I could afford at the time, honestly. So they're, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, just sitting down and uh, um, chewing through all of that. Same at 12th and Maple. Um, uh, if, if I was watching a, you know, a, a process line for a while and had some time on just uh, uh, true through those texts and I think with with a biochemistry background um, uh, a lot of the chemistry uh, um, you know was at a level I could uh, almost immediately comprehend and uh, just uh, the, to me the hardest part of uh, um, the learning process was uh, um, the, the viticulture you know the it was a, a science I wasn't necessarily familiar with but uh, in terms of chemistry everything just uh, it, it kind of clicked it was it was this um, it's interesting uh, combination of uh, um, both, like you know, some pretty basic uh, white chemistry, but then uh, you you involved uh, organic chemistry with it. There's um, uh, you know some molecular biology that's involved in it. It just it was it was all those um, uh, disciplines and science all contained in one art that I think that um, uh, really got me going. So then we mentioned viticulture as, as the mm -hmm. other part of that. So tell me about learning that, and what were the what were the biggest sort of again sort of challenges along the way of, of, of viticulture? In Texas, uh, it was uh, uh, just the um, at the time the saving futility of uh, uh, <laughs> planting uh, a vineyard in, in a place that had uh, late spring freezes and tornadoes and hailstorms and all sorts of different diseases, but. Um, that was also the place I probably learned the most uh, about viticulture in a practical sense, uh, was uh, planting and caring for those vines down there. Um, I'll be honest, up here, once I uh, moved to 12th and Maple, I had I'd moved further away from the vines than I ever really had in my career. I was, I was pretty lab focused for about you know six or seven years. And um, when I got to uh, uh, Erath, that was, that was really where I started to get back into the vineyard and kind of um, uh, picked up those texts again and was able to see in a, in a more focused and uh, honestly a rewarding way uh, the, the 
impacts of viticulture and um, you know uh, um, what these decisions um, uh, about you know growing these grapes uh, actually affected in terms of uh, you know the ends of uh, wine quality. So. So when it came time to take the next step, why did you choose the wine belly? I love the wines here, honestly. I, I, <laughs> uh, uh, there was nothing uh, uh, that, that American vineyards produced that I was more attracted to than Pinot Noir. And um, honestly, I didn't know how hard the grapes were to grow when I moved up here, nor how hard the wine was to make, um, which I think to me, uh, uh, made me fall deeper in love with this uh, the, the, this whole thing was that it was just this um, almost Gordian knot of like <laughs> uh, 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 winemaking problems to solve. I, I love that. The, 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 there was just uh, um, uh, so much to learn uh, about this place on top of making something that you loved. That, 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 that to me was, I don't know, the, the, the sexiest thing about working out here, for sure. Yeah. So you talk about 12th and Maple, obviously, Custom Crush, working mm -hmm. for all those different the brands. So tell me about the, the, the mindset of that, of, of, of kind of absorbing all, you mentioned absorbing all those winemaking philosophies, absorbing all those different styles. Right. Uh, tell me about how that kind of played into your sort of, the, your, your preferred style, your preferred method as you, were, as, you're, as you were working your way through there, and what you, and how you kind of were able to balance all the different needs of all your different clients. Yeah, so um, just yeah to kind of touch on the, the 12th and Maple experience first, um, it, it, if you've seen The Matrix before, you know that the guys will watch like those little numbers trickle down a screen. I got to the point where I was kind of doing that with like wine chemistries, right? I mean, oh, this is obviously a red wine in the middle of you know, malolactic fermentation. They should be adding this many grams per liter of tartaric to get it to a certain style, like that kind of thing. So what 12th and Maple gave me was uh, um, uh, this this intuitive sense of uh, how to um, oh gosh uh, interpret wine at any given stage and then um, uh, essentially uh, um, uh, prescribe some sort of um, action or, or um, you know uh, not take any action with the wine to get it into a certain style. Um, so once I kind of had those tools at my disposal, uh, the the um, the means of um, um, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the, the style was, I think, the thing that really uh, um, took me a while to actually, I don't know, uh, uh, understand what I wanted to make as a, as a preference. It, it, with, with Twelfth and Maple, I saw a lot of fruit from the Dundee Hills, but not strictly from the Dundee Hills. With Erath, I saw a lot of uh, uh, Dundee Hills fruit, but again, not entirely Dundee Hills fruit. Now being in a, a winery like Stoller, um, I mean, that is primarily from the Dundee Hills, it's just, it just seems to... It seems that my career is kind of focused on this uh, uh, region right here, and and what I love most about like this sub ABA is uh, um, uh, how how concentrated you can get red fruit flavors here without being overly extractive. I, I, I think that uh, some of the best um, um, styles that are coming out of here. Uh, tend to be these just a bullion, you know, um, uh, concentrated, lush uh, um, uh, styles of Pinot. And if I was to kind of define my style because because of like you know where I am and what I've seen, that would probably be it. Just to focus on um, uh, the, uh, the the purity of the fruit and uh, really trying to get out of its way uh, in terms of uh, oak, but not necessarily leaving it unframed. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. I'd, uh, uh, I, I think that um, as, as the climate warms, as we see this region kind of establish itself as, uh, um, you know, um, what, what, was, what is going to end up being a, a warmer part of um, the Willamette Valley, um, you're, you're going to see a lot more of these uh, riper vintages. And I think this, this, this part of the valley definitely lends itself to succeeding um, in that, that paradigm, at least, you know, for, for the near to midterm, for sure. So you mentioned the the, the the very the very short transition from from Filth and Maple to Erath, the very very near nearby uh, transition there. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the what was the difference for you in going from all of the different styles to like you say finally having a, a house style um, and and focusing on a single brand? Uh, it it was eye opening, honestly. The uh, um, 
the the attempt to understand uh, you know the intention and style of uh, you know a pretty well established winemaker. Um, uh, I know um, I must have pestered Gary with so many questions about like you know the the, the origins of certain uh, you know winemaking decisions and uh, the uh, um, the logic behind you know uh, his his winemaking dogmas. But um, I don't know. At the end of the day, it was nice to. Um, to see that uh, uh, the, the the genesis of those ideas, you know, from from one person that's been there for like twenty years, um, it it was a big enough brand to where it definitely kept me interested. Um, like I said, you know, growing grapes from all over the state, you're effectively making you know uh, uh, you know several different regions types of wines for one big you know uh, contiguous style. But um, I think that uh, uh, in the end you. You kind of you tied all the experience that uh, uh, that you had at Twelfth uh, and Maple in the lab there into one kind of cohesive uh, uh, understanding of uh, you know how winemaking is done. So um, it was it was it was a great logical next step in my career. I think. In terms of the what the actual work consisted of, how what was the what were the biggest differences in that step of your career, going from enology to assistant winemaker? Uh, from many brands to one brand, what was the for your actual like day to day, week to week life? What were the biggest differences? I had to go out and uh, talk about the wine that I made <laughs> <laughs> instead of just hiding behind uh, you know all my uh, instruments and uh, computers. It was it was uh, uh, it was it was difficult at first. I won't lie, but at the same time. Um, Getting to see the end user, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the, I don't know, the happiness and enthusiasm it, it bring to uh, uh, you know the consumer that that was, that was revelatory for me. Um, it, it it certainly connected a lot of things in winemaking that I wasn't previously doing. You know, I, I, from from my experience at Twelfth and Maple, winemaking was almost like a, a cerebral, you know, kind of abstraction. You know, and and. and uh, you know, being out in the market, pouring the wine, talking about it, talking about like the uh, the sites that we farm, it was all just I, I don't know. It 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 made the whole process real, mm-hmm. very very tangible, and um, uh, it, it, honestly, I think it's something that um, uh, that this whole process is something that a lot of winemakers uh, do once they make that jump from you know uh, enologist or uh, cellar master up to uh, you know uh, some winemaking principle. It's just, it's just Exactly that. It's it's um, um, something uh, that turns a lot of people off. I will say that, <laughs> but uh, it's something that I, I, I think because of that I ended up thriving in a little bit, just being able to represent it in the market and, and everything like that. In terms of uh, just production, um, it, you you had this new sense of responsibility. This this. Uh, um, uh, obligation to to your product that I, I, I didn't otherwise. I wasn't in a um, you know a, a, a client and provider relationship anymore. I was the one making the wine with Gary. You know that that was that was to me intriguing in that sense of ownership, for sure. Um, it it it, <laughs> it made you very protective. <laughs> I would say you know in the end um, uh, that that you know the the. The book kind of stopped with you in terms of quality, and that you know you uh, um, uh, ended up owning it, you know, almost only. So that, that um, again, kind of, uh, um, it, 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 to me was was where I should be in that arc of my career, and and, and owning that. And I think it was, yeah, it's a good experience to actually uh, have that, you know. So. So you mentioned interacting with end user for the, for the first real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you learn from that? What what did you learn about your the, who drinks your wine and were there did you make any adaptations or changes based on that? Um, yeah, the uh, um, the end user themselves. I mean, like the. the it was a, a diverse cast of characters. You know, I'd, I'd rep the the wines. Uh, you know, as far away as like Florida or uh, you know New York for some uh, tastings, and it, yeah, you'd never see like any specific demographic per se. It was all just uh, uh, an interesting sampling of like uh, you know um, all socioeconomic classes, right? <laughs> and that that that, would, that to me, I think was. One of the more interesting things uh, about this is that, like you, you were making an every man's wine. You know that that everybody was enjoying it. Um, in terms of what I learned or what I may have changed about it, um, you know, honestly, it, it, for that brand, it was it was so 
uh, established in terms of a house style and what you know Gary had wanted. That um, uh, uh, I, I don't think anything necessarily changed, you know, because of the end user that that um, he hadn't already uh, kind of contemplated and baked into the brand itself. It was, you know, just kind of effectively um, the. Um, the, the the guidance the guidance and maintenance of that uh, brand you know but um, I don't know in terms of how that may have changed future styles of winemaking for me like say you know my winemaking decisions here I think I realized that wine made in certain styles for that brand or even before then at um, Twelfth and Maple uh, definitely. Um, Certain styles definitely pleased people uh, in, in a very different way than others. And I'm not saying that you know everybody should be making wine, you know, strictly to uh, you know uh, please crowds or anything like that. But you definitely see, you know, um, uh, certain styles um, have a, a wider like mass appeal than than others. And getting kind of the understanding there of what differenti differentiates that versus you know what may. Uh, uh, you know, kind of key up a, a nerdy psalm type <laughs> or something like that. That's, I think, pretty crucial. So, yeah, it depends on, I guess, what I was trying to make at any given time. But, yeah. So you mentioned that in 2020, Stoller reached out to you. Do you, do you did you understand, did you, at the time, did you, were you clear, was it clear why they were looking for you? Um, you know, honestly, I think it was uh, um, just fortuitous timing. Uh, um, they uh, they were growing um, uh, pretty exponentially. The uh, um, they they wanted somebody that um, was uh, you know uh, familiar with that scale of production and uh, the the type of equipment that we're using here um, that could you know make wine reliably well off of multiple sites. Um, you know, in in, in a uh, um, Pretty uh, contiguous house style, and uh, this is just that, that's that's all stuff that's in my wheelhouse. So like, I, uh, yeah, um, when I heard they were looking, I I just jumped at the chance. I was like, this is uh, the, like a, a a custom built position for me. <laughs> but yeah. And what did you understand the position to be as you were as you were getting started? What was what was your role going to be? Um, you know, at first it was uh, one that I. Uh, um, uh, was essentially kind of just the uh, um, uh, custodian and, and manager of a uh, um, uh, the, the the larger uh, facility here, and uh, you know as as the first vintage and um, uh, the, the the subsequent year kind of went along, um, they they just gave me more and more of the reins. So. Um, now in terms of uh, what my position is now, like there's uh, a. a an enormous amount of creative input that I get to, to uh, uh, put into, you know, uh, house style, um, uh, barrel regimes, um, you know, blending, effectively like all the creative decisions um, that you know are within the bounds of that house style. Um, that that's uh, um, uh, kind of my purview at this point, which is, um, like I said, quite different from from what it was initially. You know, where you go from just executing SOPs to kind of defining what it is for uh, you know a larger uh, um, um, set of SKUs and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's still it's still interesting. This this place uh, still is. So great about um, uh, making wine in a really collaborative sense as well. Um, ben and Melissa uh, have, have, you know, uh, guided the uh, the winemaking style and the um, um, kind of the, the winemaking ethos here um, in, in a really, really definitive, um, uh, really uh, um, thoughtful way over the years. And uh, yeah, I'm just I don't know, kind of kind of glad to be part of that for sure. You talked about joining right at the before harvest of 2020, which, of course, as you mentioned, was a very challenging harvest. So, mm -hmm. tell me about that being your first experience. Uh, how did you? How were you kind of simultaneously learning your role here and learning the space here while also dealing with that kind of vintage? Have you ever drank from a fire hose? <laughs> it was, it was kind of like that. Um, it, it was it was interesting uh, to uh, hit the ground uh, running doing. Hundreds of micro ferments for smoke taint analysis, while also uh, getting to know a crew and a brand new cellar, and brand new wine styles. Um, uh, also, uh, um, uh, learning new SOPs. Like it, it, it was a lot. <laughs> I'll say that. And it, it, if I'll be honest, the the saving grace was uh, the fact that. Um, our production, because of the smoke event, was a little lower that year. I didn't have 
the uh, uh, the the throughput that I you know would the next year and um, God, small mercies, right? Like, so uh, it was it was uh, um, I feel just a. Um, a, a a lot to learn, but at the same time, um, I think it made both me and all of my crew uh, understand what we were capable of uh, in, in a real sense. It really tested all of us, I think, but um, now to start seeing some of these scores roll in from the red wines we made from that vintage and, and uh, before that, the rosés from last year, or from uh, the scores last year, uh, it, was, it was validating. You know um, that, that um, we, we not only uh, you know, were able to uh, just as a team, um, cohere and uh, um, you know persevere through that, but that all that effort um, uh, was 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 appreciated appreciated in a critical sense. Yeah, that was. I don't know, it, 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 I, I don't look back on it now as like, oh god, that was so miserable. I look at, uh, back on it now as like, man, this is one of one of the bigger wins I think I've had. You know, in my career, it. it I don't know. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. So you talked earlier about the, the pride in that, and then you, know, you see reiterated there. So mm. all as as the vintage was as it was becoming clear what you were dealing with in terms of smoke. Tell me about the decisions you were making and the experiments you were running, um, and what were the kind of what what caused the success? What what led you to the success you had? Uh, you know, as soon as um, the smoke events started, um, I think the entire brain trust here started uh, um, looking into. Uh, the most current research uh, out of uh, uh, both California and Australia on the topic, um, which at the time was um, effectively uh, uh, you know a small suite of uh, 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 prophylactic uh, measures uh, as well as some diagnostic tools uh, that um, we could implement at an early stage. So that to us, like I said, was was micro ferments from um, you know all the the blocks that recognize our relative risk. Um, knowing that we needed to move to less extractive uh, modes of production, we ended up uh, transitioning a lot of uh, wine that was earmarked for uh, uh, red wine production into um, uh, rosé production, and that gamble paid off in spades. Uh, we made outstanding rosé um, that you know still uh, commercially viable. It kept us, uh, you know, kept our inventory stocked. I think we sold out like of, of that rosé by November of the next year just insane to me um, and then basically got on the uh, the vineyard um, uh, or, I'm sorry got the vineyard to uh, uh, commit to uh, um, basically harvesting 24 hours a day uh, with the uh, um, uh, with their crews and mechanical harvesters to get as much uh, fruit off as early as we could for the smoke event and um, a lot of the ferments were done um, a little less extractively. I didn't, I didn't, um, you know, put these through with uh, an extreme amount of uh, heat for extraction. Didn't, um, you know, just tear them apart in terms of, uh, um, you know, cap manipulations or anything like that. And then um, kept all of our lots uh, as uh, isolated as possible to the last possible moment. Um, we we just wanted to uh, study these uh, uh, wines uh, as best we could for as long as we could prior to bottling. And um, the idea there being that uh, if uh, the, the effects of that smoke event, if smoke taint, you know, ended up uh, um, cropping up later, uh, we could then, um, you know, choose some sort of uh, um, remediative treatment. And, you know, if, if the prophylaxis didn't work, then we could at least, you know, e examine our other options, uh, which, you know, um, in, in a small number of cases was um, uh, RO treatment with a little uh, carbon, um, you know, which to us was one of the only effective measures at actually eliminating smoke. Um, uh, I say effective because we actually were, actually were able to quantify the removal of compounds in that. Um, that was something that I, I thought was crucial in, in understanding um, how to solve this uh, issue. Um, uh, in in uh, in a real sense, I think that a lot of people um, were trying uh, remediative methods that they were told would work, but weren't necessarily like measuring the actual effects, of the results, right? Like, and uh, to me, I needed to actually actually see you know a reduction in, in things I could quantify, and you know, some of the uh, um, uh, smoke-related uh, uh, volatile phenols and uh, phenolic glucosides, so uh, glycosides, sorry, and. Um, 
Yeah, uh, the the to us, you know, the getting the the grapes off of the vine as quickly as possible, and then um, kind of quarantining any uh, problem lots and treating them individually. Uh, I think was. Um, Validated in, in terms of the wine quality later. I, I don't feel that you know any of our wines that we released, any, any of our any of our red wines from that vintage in particular that we released, uh, um, uh, show much in the way, if any effect of, at all, of the smoke um, uh, event itself. So, again, just want to yeah, kind of point to that as like <laughs> one of the bigger wins in my career is, is just like I'm being part of a team that uh, um, you know brought all that uh, together for you know. A, a pretty big success for this company, for sure. So then last year you got to do it a bit more normally. So tell me about your first kind of normal vintage here. Mm -hmm. um, how did it compare to previous work and what were the biggest kind of uh, discoveries for you uh, at, the, at your, new, your new place? Yeah, um, you know, it was, it, uh, to me it was like, uh, um, I don't know, uh, finally like, uh, uh, yeah, being able to realize the the capability of not only this facility, but then uh, uh, my crew's talent as well. Um, I just kind of always had faith that you know we'd be able to uh, execute on a high level, and we definitely did. Um, I asked a lot of my crew um, uh, just because I saw what they were uh, capable of doing the uh, the, the harvest previously, um, and that uh, they were I don't know more than up to the task. We had better. Um, uh, integration into uh, uh, the vineyards, better sampling, uh, better execution of uh, all winemaking protocols. Um, yeah, it, it, it was, to me, just uh, really uh, enlightening to see uh, a cohesive vision as to, uh, you know, the, the entirety of a winemaking process realized, you know, that the, the, the culmination of, um, you know, all that um, uh, the knowledge I'd had from uh, uh, you know seeing the lab and Twelfth uh, of Maple and then uh, um, the, uh, the the speculative things that you know I kind of learned at Erath but was never able to implement um, you know uh, all implemented in one vintage at one facility you know under one vision it it was it, it was very exciting <laughs> it, was, it was something I've been driving toward you know for my entire career and uh, just very happy to do it. So then, as you as you look ahead for your work here, uh, as you mentioned, the, the parameters are already kind of growing for you, and your creative inputs are growing. What are you looking for next? What what comes next here? You know, to me, I think it's uh, addressing the um, the changing climate and and how that uh, you know plays into winemaking. Uh, I think that you know, in terms of uh, how we've got a handle on winemaking style here and how we've you know, defined what Stoller is, um, you know, in an enological sense. It's it's um, it's being good stewards of that style, being good stewards for the environment, and then also responding to uh, the, the the coming challenges of growing grapes in this region. I think that um, you know, while while you know the near to midterm, uh, you know, maybe um, mildly optimistic in terms of just you know the growing seasons. It's it's uh, yeah. 15, 20 years out that I really start to worry about that. And I think that um, uh, as, as, as we grow as an industry, we're going to have to kind of collaborate on what that means in terms of, uh, um, you know, succeeding together, for sure. Um, we are a warmer site here. And I think that, um, you know, we're, we're going to be on the forefront of um, showing uh, what looks like success, you know, for uh, uh, the, this region in general. So you mentioned that the reason that what drove you here to the valley in the first place was your love of the wine mm -hmm. here. So I'm curious, uh, once you got here, what were your first impressions of Oregon's wine making and the people here and the and of the valley? It, you know, honestly, it was such a, a culture shock moving from Texas up here, um, uh, for better or worse. Honestly, um, it, it was it was curious to see. Um, uh, I guess the the variety of um, uh, approaches in winemaking, ones that you know were just as rigorous as I would have hoped they would have been, you know, in uh, uh, Texas, and you know those are the ones I learned from the most. To um, some of the, uh, um, I put this um, uh, more speculative. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, 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 non-traditional modes of uh, winemaking, for sure. And um, yeah, I, 
again, just going back to the, the relative successes and, and failures of both uh, philosophies, I, I, I don't know. This is a great region to learn that from, for sure. Um, it, it was interesting to, to move from a uh, climate that was uh, so hot in the growing season that was so short uh, to one where uh, you were harvesting as late as like, I don't know, the first week of November in the case of like 2010 or something like that. And um, yeah, the, the, the paradigm in which uh, you were making wine was just not what I was used to at all. Um, and uh, yeah, the, uh, um, <laughs> the fact that you didn't have to truck grapes for um, eight hours <laughs> across the state on air condition was, I think, one of the biggest uh, um, yeah, revelations up here where Effectively, the you know majority of the grapes that you'll produce are probably within 30 miles of uh, your facility. That that to me was one of the biggest luxuries that I just didn't realize, and you know it was possible in Texas. So that was that was yeah kind of nice to to have. What about the people who are here making wine? What did you what did you think about them? Um, again, just uh, with those philosophies, um, that there was such a, a varied approach um, to. Uh, uh, to, to you know what constituted the correct way to make wine and it started I don't know kind of my examination of uh, um, uh, those successes and failures that I keep coming back to um, I, was, I was seeing the uh, the results in the data and you know what what you know I would deem to be uh, uh, you know a failure they would deem to be a success and started to realize that like just the the notion of truth the notion of correctness in winemaking is um, as subjective as it could be, you know, for for any sort of uh, um, thing that you craft, any art form, right? So, um, I, I guess at first, uh, I, I really thought that uh, you know, uh, so many people were making these wines incorrectly. But then started to realize, like that. Who, who is the arbiter of what is correct? You know, so uh, I, I broadened I broadened my mind a little bit and, and started to be a little bit more um, uh, understanding of uh, you know the the, the Different winemakers' approaches to wines and, and understand, uh, uh, you know, their personal stories uh, behind it. So I, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of cherish all those experiences. One, even the ones that I'm like just philosophically, like diametrically opposed to. <laughs> they're still, they're still making wine for people that enjoy it. You know, and and uh, who can fault them for that? So. So what are the what are the changes you've seen in the industry then since you've been a part of it? Um, I, I think the the consolidation and um, the the the, know, the mechanization and automation of uh, the industry has has been some of the biggest uh, um, changes that I've seen since I've got here. Um, in '09, when I first did the uh, um, the internship, the the amount of like mechanically harvested fruit and the uh, you know throughput of processing. Um, was pretty limited. Uh, I'd say less than half of it was coming in as machine pick. And for Erath, uh, it wasn't arriving in these you know big um, seven to eight ton tubs. It was all in half ton harvest bins. And um, slowly, you started to see um, the the advent of um, you know the the, the the higher throughput, um, bigger ranches coming online. Um, that started to look a little bit more like um, uh, winemaking in uh, you know the Central California than than it did in, uh, other places. But with that said, um, we're, we're a fussy uh, group of winemakers up here, and I don't feel that um, it's it's ever going to be that level of mechanization. We're we're still going to treat this grape as uh, you know something fragile and precious and hard to make and. and I think that's entirely justified. Um, so while you know that trend may be um, you know uh, well underway or uh, to the point at which it's kind of de rigueur, um, I also don't think we're ever going to look like Lodi <laughs> or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh gosh, in, anywhere in the Central Valley for sure. Yeah. So what comes next for the industry? Um, I think that uh, you know at, at this point we're kind of constrained in terms of uh, uh, vines in the ground. Obviously, we're um, um, at a point of uh, um, demand outstripping supply, and I think that um, uh, we're going to see some investment in um, not only uh, um, the, the the ground that the, the grapes are grown on, but then also the talent that comes up here. Um, I think that. 
I don't know, in the next uh, 10 to 20 years, uh, you're going to see uh, uh, more plantings, but not a whole lot of, um, I don't know, uh, the Californianization. You know? <laughs> uh, I think that uh, you'll still see a bunch of people deferring to what has traditionally just been organ modes of uh, production just scaled up. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a good thing. I think that um, addressing climate change, like I said earlier, is going to be a, a, a big component of what um, we do collaboratively as a uh, um, an industry up here, for sure. Uh, I just, uh, yeah, um, um, how we respond to it um, and uh, um, how, how we be good stewards of the environment, I think, is, is going to be the, the most uh, important question that we answer as a, as a group. What have you seen in that regard so far, and what do you sort of think, hope, comes next? You know, honestly, I'd, um, <laughs> like coming from Texas up here and seeing an environmental initiatives just, you know, done by corporations um, that, that own wineries, um, it, it, it was it was eye-opening to see uh, that, that amount of, uh, um, I don't know, uh, investment and, um, I don't know, um, ethos baked into most of the corporations. Um, but, uh, uh, I don't know, to answer your question, like, I'd, um, we're, as, as one of the more carbon neutral uh, um, industries, you know, in this state, I, I think we can, you know, kind of serve as a model, um, uh, an, an, un, an unimpeachable model as to how to address uh, these, uh, uh, these types of issues. Uh, I think that, um, you know, just kind of being um, one of the higher profile industries in this state, if, if people can look to us and say, well, you know, they've, they've uh, you know, done, done so much in terms of uh, um, being in service to the environment, then um, uh, maybe you change minds that way. So. And you mentioned, we kind of talked about what's ahead for, for your work here at Solar. What else is in the future for you? Is, uh, is there more, more vermouth to come or something else? Or <laughs> what else is kind of on your horizon? More travel, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, now that, now that we can again. Um, yeah, the, 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 the vermouth thing, I think, is just going to uh, kind of hang out, um, you know, and, and be what it is for a while. I don't have any uh, uh, grand plans to, to take over the world with that. Um, uh, I think that, uh, yeah, for me, it's um, going to be all about growth here, for sure. Uh, just, uh, um, you know, both uh, growing the brand, uh, kind of growing teams, and uh, um, you know, being able to uh, kind of tell uh, my story of Oregon. So. Someone were to ask you for your words of wisdom or advice on joining the Oregon wine industry, what would you tell them? Um, come in with an open mind. <laughs> Honestly, um, yeah, be, be ready to have your notions of uh, 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 truth uh, uh, shook a little bit and uh, uh, ask lots of questions. Don't stop asking questions. <laughs> it is funny how in all of our interviews people always say, I must have annoyed that person with all my questions. And it's, mm-hmm. just, it's just, it's part of the industry, right? Oh, it, it needs to be, yeah. You have to be curious if you want to be good in this industry, I feel. Yeah. So all the questions that I have for you. Great. Anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered. No, this has been great. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for right. your time, for Cheers. sharing your stories with us. Absolutely. And, uh, let you off the hook. All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.